0: It is a tremendous gift to be with you in worship today. I greet you on behalf of 1,400 congregations, 11 theological schools, more than 700 endorsed chaplains, 77 missionaries, all your sisters and brothers in Christ, all around this country, and all around the world and I thank you for your partnership in the Gospel from the very first day until now. Your congregation, the First Baptist Church of Asheville, North Carolina, has been a leader in our Cooperative Baptist Fellowship not just since the first day, but even before. And so the chance to be here with you and worship with you and offer gratitude for your partnership in ministry is all grace, and for that I say thank you. Now I have a gift for you, perhaps. I plan to do no more denominational commercial in the next 20-ish minutes. Instead, I have come to invite you to stand with me at an intersection that is created by our scripture texts for this morning. Because if you stand at this intersection where these two texts, the 84th Psalm and the second chapter of Revelation place us, you find yourself literally suspended between a love song and a lament. First, I invite you to listen even more carefully to the words of the love song that we already heard read and reflected on so powerfully earlier in this service. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God of hosts! My soul longs, indeed it faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. A day in your courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. How lovely. How lovely. How lovely. She who sings that song sings as one who has entered the temple in Jerusalem and has been mesmerized by its beauty. She who sings this love song is one who, upon entering the temple precincts, has experienced the very presence of the living God. That's why her heart and her flesh sing for joy to the living God. Struck by beauty. Rendered speechless. By majesty, ushered into the presence of a loving God whose love will not ever let go, she picks up where all preaching stops, at the end of spoken words, and her voice takes flight in song. How lovely! How lovely, how lovely. To hear her song as Christians requires us to recognize something. She sings this song about the temple in Jerusalem which several hundred years later, depending on how you count and where you went to graduate school and what Old Testament professor you had, if you did go to graduate school, was destroyed centuries later. She sings this love song about a, a place of worship that no longer exists, A place of worship that we Christians believe has been superseded by the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, and the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost, so that now when we Christians talk about the dwelling place of God, as the hymn writer reminded us in our second hymn, we don't just have our eyes on temples made with hands even as beautiful as they can be. When we think of the dwelling place of God, we think about a congregation that gathers for worship, that listens to the Scriptures, that prays the Psalms, that seeks to embrace its community, that invites more and more people into the love of God, not through beautiful architecture of a building, but instead through the reconciling, resurrected architecture of human relationships that have been remade by a God who still raises dead people. When we think about the dwelling place of God, we Baptists think about local congregations comprised of broken human beings who, as your former pastor and my first predecessor once famously said, on its best day, the church is not heaven. It's a halfway house on the road. It does sound like Cecil, doesn't it? (laughs) Very much like Cecil, so much so that he said it. (laughs) When we think about the dwelling place of God, we dare to think about a congregation of broken human beings that has been drawn together by the love and mercy of God to worship and praise and serve and struggle. Has there been a time in your life when you could look at a congregation of believers and be moved to sing? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of Hosts! My soul longs, indeed it faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Have you ever been so mesmerized by the beauty of a community? Have you ever been so struck by the way a community ushered you into the embrace of God that you could not help but sing for joy? Well, before I get too far ahead of myself, I need to turn your attention away from the love song and ask you to listen to the lament. Because you see, it's not just any lament. It's it's a lament directed at the church of Ephesus. Even in the first century, a big steeple church. According to tradition, the mother of Jesus had been there. According to tradition, the writer of the fourth gospel worshiped there. Talk about VIPs. This congregation had been the host of the Apostle Paul longer than any other of the congregations to which he traveled. But the risen Jesus speaks a word of lament over them in the second chapter of Revelation. He says, you have abandoned the love You had it the first. You see, there's no doubt that the church at Ephesus had once had the kind of compelling love for Christ and its life together that could cause people to sing. St. Paul had prayed and written his prayer in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 that they would know the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The very fact that Jesus says they have abandoned the love they had at the first is proof positive that they, in fact, had love at the first. But did you hear what else there is in Jesus said about the church at Ephesus? You've been working hard. You've hung in. You didn't give up when it would have been easy to give up. Your life has been marked by a persistent, patient, relentless endurance. You kept saying yes to the nominating committee when you wanted to say no. I added that, but it seems like it's in the spirit. You came to church when they had a visiting denominational leader. You came to church in the middle of the generosity campaign in a generation when people avoid that at almost any cost. You believers at Ephesus, you have kept on when others would have stopped. You've kept on serving and kept on volunteering and kept on working and kept on being the church. Even when being the church was really difficult, you persevered, you endured, you were persistent. but you've abandoned the love you had at the first. As you listen to that lament in its context, let me ask you, can anyone here imagine a set of circumstances where the exhaustion of being the church in a difficult time could overcome the love that was had at the first can you imagine a season where you give and you give and you give and you give to the point of exhaustion, but it doesn't quite feel like it did in another time or another generation? Do you know what it is for the effort and the commitment and the perseverance, the toil, To slowly erode the love you had at the first, to the point where the song no longer takes flight. The risen Jesus speaks this lament to people in the church, which is why I phrased the question the way I did. He's not saying that people outside the church have abandoned the love they once had for the church. That's kind of obvious, right? There are plenty of people in Asheville, North Carolina today who found something other to do than to come here. There are plenty of people in Athens, Georgia, on at least seven weekends of the fall, find other ways to spend their time, and it has something to do with SEC football. If you have questions about that, talk to Ryan later. There are all kinds of cultural trends that make people less interested in institutions, less interested in churches, and we haven't even begun to speak of the mistakes the church has made that have compromised our witness in the world or our position in communities. Jesus isn't speaking lament over those external things. No, Jesus is saying to the people inside the church at Ephesus, the people who kept on keeping on when keeping on was not easy, you've lost your song. You've lost the love you had at the first. That's why I said that this morning we find ourselves standing at an intersection where a love song meets a lament and a question hangs in the air at the intersection. The question is when it comes to our posture toward the church of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the inclinations of our own hearts, when it comes to the emotions in our inner being that are too deep for words. If our inner being could be laid bare this morning, would it sound more like the love song of Psalm 84 or more like the lament of Revelation 2? As that question wafts in the air. The risen Jesus keeps talking. (laughs) That's the hope, by the way, in any sermon that Jesus will actually say something. The risen Jesus keeps talking. The risen Jesus says, remember from what you have fallen. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it, if I can quote a good Presbyterian today. Remember, recover your dear early love. Recover a compelling love. Recover the love for Christ and his church that you had at the first And stand up with new energy and speak with new clarity and love with more recklessness and live with more faithfulness. Recover until you sing for joy again. I wonder how we recover the love we had at the first. Could it be that we could take Jesus at his word and recover? by remembering? Do you remember when you first fell in love with Christ and his church? Not a temple made with hands, but instead a community of believers that surrounded you in love and showed you what it meant to follow Jesus? Do you remember the first time you sensed a love that would not let you go and still hasn't? Do you remember the first time in an experience of church you experienced a love that caused you to sing because you couldn't speak? I'm trying to remember the first time it happened for me. I think it might have been when I was a four-year-old child and I went to church with my sister and my parents at Wake Chapel on the campus of Wake Forest University, back in the days when Wake Forest had a basketball team. (laughs) I was, after after all, born in another century, you see. (laughs) That congregation worshiped in this huge space. But what I remember most as a four-year-old child is that I would show up at church on Sunday morning with my sister and my parents and our childhood pastor, who was a cantankerous Baptist named Warren Carr, would drop down on his knees, call me and my sister by name, and ask us how our week had gone as though there was some chance in heaven something important had happened. I might have been hooked then. If I wasn't hooked then, I was hooked during the difficult days of middle school. Perhaps some in the balcony would like to keep doing middle school forever. I must admit, I'm glad it's gone. But what saved my life in middle school was I had a youth minister who every Wednesday night when he could have gone home, would sit in his office and listen to me talk as though my confused, frustrated, angry middle school life mattered to God. And if it wasn't in that moment in particular, it had to be on Maundy Thursday in my eighth grade year when our congregation gathered for worship and my parents dragged me to church against my will. And I was sitting on the second row right over there as we were receiving communion. The choir stood to sing this magnificent and harrowing anthem about the crucifixion of Jesus. It was Gil Martin's at the cry of the first bird, Clark. And I remember as the anthem was being sung and the communion elements were being passed, I had my first sense that God was loving me in a way I could not put into words and I would still struggle to explain 35 years later if I tried. Do you remember the first time a community of faithful Christ Followers drew you into a love that still has not let you go? Is it possible that as you remember those experiences, your heart might turn from fatigue to gratitude, and from gratitude to joy? Jesus's statement, recover your dear early love, is a call to each of us personally, but I must say on this Reformation Sunday, it is also a call to the whole church. What do you think would have to be true about a congregation today to make its life so beautiful and its ministry so compelling And it's witness so loving that people outside in a cynical, angry, polarized, frustrated world might fall to their knees and sing, how lovely, how lovely, how lovely. Is there a way that we can treat one another inside the church that because of its love and respect and its embrace and its encouragement is so different from everything else going on in the world that we shine like stars in the universe? Is there a way a congregation like this one can extend the embrace of Christ's love all the way around a city for which it has been a cathedral for years? Isn't that your desired future? That you would wrap your arms around this whole city in an embrace that will not let go? What would it mean for you to speak and sing and live and love and serve in such a way that a community that has given up on church and thinks they've had more baptism they could take might stop dead in their tracks and say, how lovely! how lovely. More than 500 years ago, Martin Luther went to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed 95 theses on a door. Can you imagine a sermon with 95 points? Talk about endurance. You should try to read those 95 theses someday. But the other gift I have for you today is this. I only have one. And it's this. At this moment in time, a congregation of believers gathered by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knit together in a set of relationships that no social media engineer could imagine, speaking a language that's more loving in a sea of hate, demonstrating resurrection with its every action, is still uniquely suited to provide the world a demonstration of an answer to Jesus's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. My prayer for you is that you will be that congregation that so recovers a compelling love that all who pass this way And all who approach on those steps will sing, how lovely, how lovely, how lovely.